we're in our series in the, in the Psalms, Summer Psalms, I believe is what we're calling it, and um, you'll know in a second if the slide comes up, uh, if my notes are incorrect. Um, the one thing I love about the Psalms is that it shows us the real workings of the human heart, like it shows us what life is really like in our hearts, the honesty and vulnerability of the Psalms, crying out to God in the midst of trials, troubles, um, and loss. And in terms of trials and loss, I think of how um, hopeful, ignorant, naive you are when you're younger, and then how like part of getting old is also life sort of just kicking you in the chest enough that you start to build up a little bit of fear and anxiety and worry as you get older because you know that life doesn't always turn out the way you want, that there sometimes are hardships and troubles that come and they come out of the blue and they're totally unsus- you, you don't suspect them. Like I think of um, myself in high school and, you know, my little clique of friends, and I just wonder if I could go back in time and look at all of those, you know, late 90s, early 2000s high school kids. If I were to say to that clique of friends, like, uh, you in the puka shell necklace and the cargo shorts, you'll die in a year. Uh, You'll have great financial hardship out of the blue in 2008. Uh, you'll have relationship trouble, you'll deal with anxiety and depression, and you'll, you know, lose your parents in, in, you know, unsuspecting. Like, real life happens. We live in a painful, broken world, and if I were to just zip back to that group, I would go, um, yeah, like, it's all going to hit you. And when you're younger, you think, no, I'll go from victory to victory to victory, because you think problems happen to other people, but you don't really expect them on yourself. But part of getting a little bit older, part of having real life happen to you is that you realize, yeah, there's like a a brokenness to the world and there's no guaranteeing, even if you make perfect choices, even if you make perfect investments, even if you pick the perfect spouse, not that that exists, that real problems happen. So it's good news when we read from Scripture that people who follow God face all sorts of troubles and need God's protection. I'm reminded of um, Shakespeare in Macbeth that says, each new morn, new widows howl, New orphans cry, and new sorrows strike heaven on the face. There's something that can kind of bear you in that reality. Every new morning, a new widow howls, new orphans are born, and new sorrows strike heaven on the face. That's just the reality of the world that we live into. But Scripture tells us something about it. Life with God says something about it. And so the question is, how do we have peace and poise and resilience in the midst of suffering. I want to back up for a second and even just say that um, the reason why we talk about pain and suffering, I think a lot at Ambassador, is not that we have a much harder life than everyone else, but there's actually a few reasons. One, for people who see themselves as very high-functioning, resilient, able to get through everything, I think it's good that we as Christians normalize the conversation about pain. You know, you go to the doctor and they say, the pain that you're experiencing, um, 10 is the worst pain you've ever felt how, much, how bad is your pain right now? Well, the thing that's inherent in that sort of question is that pain is subjective. And so someone's 10 is their 10, and it hurts and it feels real to them, even if someone down the street is like, your 10 ain't nothing. Like, you know, I remember one time when I was a teenager, I had some, like, dental surgery, and I didn't have the, like, um, I wasn't vocal enough to be like, that hurts a ton. Like, I didn't know you could just say that, and they would just give you drugs to make the pain go away. And so I just sat there and got dental surgery, and I was like, 
this is the most pain I've ever been in. And to that day, to this day, that's the most pain I've ever been in. I just was stupid enough not to be like, that drilling sensation is not normal. Okay, so like that's my 10, right? And everyone has their 10. Pain is subjective. And so in a community, it's okay for us to have open conversations and no shame around the fact that I'm in pain, I'm dealing with loss, I'm, I'm, I'm in fear, I'm, in, I'm anxious. So normalizing the conversation. Also, this is really good for us to talk about trials and suffering, even if life's going great for you right now. Because we need to be equipped and ready for the next time the trials hit so that we're not shocked or surprised or caught off guard when things really do happen. And then thirdly, I read someone recently who was just sort of a cultural commentator uh, about the beliefs of the average non-Christian these days. And in studying the philosophies and beliefs and traditions of ancient people and of other cultures today, this uh, professor was saying, she was saying, the, the mat- secular materialistic worldview, like the belief that most people have if they're sort of irreligious, non-religious, um, does less for you in the midst of pain than any other culture and time in human history. That was her opinion. That the belief that a lot of people have today, walking around Brea, walking around our city, um, in, your, in your workspace, that the average non-Christian person who believes that there's nothing above the material world in this cultural moment that we live in does less for you if you're suffering than any other culture in human history and other cultures even today. Because other cultures had different ways of dealing with suffering and assumed suffering would happen in the ancient world. And other cultures today might be more tribal, but therefore more supportive. Other cultures um, train children about how to be courageous, but that's not a normal part of our um, public school education system, not, not political courage one of the biggest lessons you learn as a kid, but it was in other times, it is in other parts of the world today. And so suffering is important for us to talk about because we need to help people who don't know Jesus, are far from God, especially deal with suffering and see what resources we have in the gospel to handle those things. So three things that we're going to talk about here from Psalm 91, we see a promise of God's protection, the promise in verses 1 through 4. We see how to understand that promise properly and how sort of confusing it is to understand the promise in the middle of the passage. And then in the end of the passage, we'll see how we can enter into that promise of God's protection so that we can live in peace and with poise and resilience in the midst of the trials that we face in our life. So the promise, if you look at the beginning of our passage, verses one through four, we see that the promise is that God will protect you. See here the verbiage of God as shelter, God as shade, shade in the ancient Near East, a hot, dry, punishing climate. And the metaphor here is that he will provide for you a shadow from the sun and from the, from the pain of living in that part of the world. He is our refuge, our shield, our fortress. Well, let's just read our passage. What words stand out to you? Verse one, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God whom I trust. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare, from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. When I was reading it this week, what stood out to me was this image of a mother bird hiding, protecting, having strength over her little baby chicklets. You know, we see the metaphor of God as father throughout scripture. He's revealed to himself to us as father. 
And yet there's these images that come out, especially multiple places where God is mother, mother hen, God is mother bird, God is three different things at least from the, um, from the Bible when God is mom protecting mother bird. It means that God is strength to protect us and has the strength to actually do something to protect us, which is significant when we're dealing with troubles because sometimes our main way of doubting God can be that he's just not powerful enough to deal with my problems. Like your problems feel so real, so 10 out of 10 in the pain scale that our type of doubt is not that God has abandoned us. Um, it, It might be that for other people. It's not that God is not forgiving and therefore it hates you. For some of us, it's that God is just not powerful enough to deal with this issue. Sure, other people's issues, sure, other things in my past, but right now, this is so real, 10 out of 10, he's not powerful enough, he can't really come through in this particular issue. And so it shows us here that God is the strong mother bird. It also conveys when God is covering us in that way that God is near and tender to us tender with us, which I think is one of the main sort of feelings that come out of God in this metaphor. That he's not just up in the sky blocking the sun. He's right above you, with you, hugging you, covering you with his strength. It means God is not distant while you're dealing with these kinds of problems. But it's not just that God protects you. It's, it's sort of a covenant promise. We don't use the word covenant a lot, but marriage is like our best cultural practice with covenant because it, marriage is not just a spiritual practice. You have to sign some paperwork at some point, which for some people, the church part of it is like the most real commitment. For some people, it's like, well, there's like a contract associated with this and like that's the real commitment for you. But whatever it is, like it is a bridge between those two. It is emotional, spiritual, celebratory marriage, but it's also an actual commitment. And then when you marry those two things, um, no pun intended, then, um, then that is a covenant. It's sort of the definition of a covenant. And so this, this is a covenant promise for us. Verse 2, I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God, which throughout the whole Old Testament, my God is the covenant language. I'll be your God. You will be my people. That's the covenant. All the way back to like the early part of the Old Testament. My God is the covenant. And how we enter into the covenant, of course, is by trusting in Jesus. And that's the language in part here in verse 2. My God in whom I trust. So what's the point here? The promise is that if you trust God, if you trust in Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior, You have that covenant, and then therefore you have that kind of promise from God. Second point, how do we understand this promise? It's a very easy promise to misunderstand because if you just read Psalm 91, you wouldn't get the perspective that the rest of the Bible gives us about the nature of this promise. And so we have to like learn how to interpret the Bible here, and so this is just a super short tangent. But you have to make sure that when you're reading your Bible and you come across a passage where you say, oh, that seems oversimplified. Or um, that's confusing and that doesn't match my view of reality, then you have to just back up a little bit from that passage and say, what does the rest of Scripture show us how, on how to read this particular passage? And so if you got into the middle of this psalm and you, and it, you read that it says, here, let's start in verse 5. 
that you will not ever fear. You go, well, I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian for a long time, and I thought that I could just sort of enter into a relationship through Jesus, and so I feel saved, and yet I'm a very fearful person. You might read Psalm 91 and go, that's not my reality. You won't fear. Uh, Verse 6, you'll be protected from pestilence. Pestilence sounds like some sort of word from Magic the Gathering. Has anyone ever played Magic the Gathering? It's like, I play pestilence. It's like a magical word. I think that's in our world today. Okay, nobody. Um, Anyways, I just showed you something about my nerdy middle school years there. Um, You know, pestilence, sickness, illness, plague that destroy us at midday. Verse 7, we're talking about military stuff now. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right. They won't come near you. So God will protect you from illness and plague and fear and military. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishments of the wicked. So you're going to see justice happen. So we're talking about legal, sort of like judicial systemic injustice done away with. You don't have to fear, you know, systemic political injustice. Verse 9, if you say... The Lord is my refuge and make the most high your dwelling. No harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you and guard all your ways. And this is like verse 11 is magnified by verse 12. The angels will protect you. Verse 12, they will lift you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. It's saying you won't even stub your toe. So this is like quite a claim. What is the nature of God's promise and protection, a promise of protection for his covenant people. Well, let me give you two reasons why you would be wrong if, for instance, you read this and said, okay, believers of God who really have faith and really honor God don't have bad things happen to them, which I think is our temptation to read it. And maybe it's because our heart kind of wants that. If I'm good to you, God, you'll give me what I want. Like, um, if you read it that way and you have that, that temptation, so to speak, then we need to zip over to the book of Job. Because there's even language in here that sort of elicits the story of the book of Job. And what's the the book of Job about? That there's this very faithful follower of God. And then the Hasatan, the the adversary uh, from the Hebrew, is there and saying, if you don't give Job all the things that are good in the world, then he's going to abandon you, God. And God says, no, he'll, he'll be faithful. And then as troubles hit Job's life, there's these different moments in Job, which is a very long book. Like the very modern, I want the Cliff Notes version thing of me is like, God, why is Job so long? This could have been a great like three-page story, but it's a very long book, very poetic. But throughout the book, all these friends come in and they give their recipe, their advice, their solution to human suffering. But one of the main messages you hear from Job's friends is, you must have done something to God and that's why he's punishing you. Or you must not have enough faith because look at the problems that are hitting your life. Like in essence, the friends, different times in the book said, if you were really faithful to God or if God were very faithful to you, then you would not have these problems in your life. And at the very end of Job, God shows up in the world when in this huge, powerful miracle image, and then God directly says to the friends, you speak wrongly about me. So the big sort of cliffhanger towards the end of the book is, is that our relationship with God? Like, if troubles hit, then God has abandoned us or he's not powerful over it. And we see here that troubles do hit the life of the believer and God is still faithful, loving mother bird. 
we also know, second passage to give us some perspective on understanding this promise, we also know something about Satan here. And we don't know everything about Satan. I, ha- I can venture a guess that he doesn't have a pitchfork because I don't think it's in the Bible, but, you know, sometimes I forget these things. Uh, like, there's things that we, we don't know about Satan, but we do know something about Satan here, which is that Satan wants followers of God to think that God doesn't let bad things happen to Christians. We know that. We know that Satan wants to tempt us to believe and misinterpret and misunderstand the psalm to say bad things won't happen if God's really good. We know this because Satan only quoted Scripture once, I think, in the Gospels. And when he quotes Scripture, he quotes Psalm 91. So in the book of Luke, for instance, um, Luke 21 I'm sorry, Luke chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, Satan is tempting Jesus, trying to derail him, trying to stop his ministry, trying to stop this whole save the world business before it can start. And in that temptation, Satan quotes verses 11 and 12, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. So the temptation from Satan is this. If God lets you suffer, he is not being true to his word. Can I say that again? The temptation from Satan is for us to believe that if God lets something bad happen to you, therefore he is not being true to his promise, his covenant, his word. But it's not true. We know this because we also even see it through the Old Testament with Joseph. We have to ask the question, so what is the promise then? What is the promise for you even today that is so powerful that Satan wants to derail it? What is the promise that's so effective, so, so life-changing, so resilience-creating that Satan wants to derail you? Well, let's discover and sort of understand what the Bible does say about this kind of promise. If we think about Joseph, Joseph in the Old Testament, he, his father Jacob favored him because that family dysfunction where the father just doted on one person, but then the three brothers were not uh, cared for. That kind of family crazy dysfunction created a lot of negative stuff with Joseph. Arrogant, cruel, even his dreams sort of uh, imaged his attitude about himself where he's very self-centered. This is Joseph's early stage in the book of Genesis. So the brothers who are angry at Joseph, they sell Joseph into slavery, and then Joseph even goes into prison. And so for years... Joseph had this injustice happen to him. And God seemed to have been silent for years, maybe even decades. How am I in jail? How am I in slavery? I, I was just a normal, spoiled kid with God's covenant person, Jacob. And now I'm in, enslaved and imprisoned? How is God good in the midst of this? What good could even come from it? And in the end of the story, we see, of course, um, that the bad things that happened to Joseph were for a very specific purpose. Genesis 50 verse 20 says, at the end of the story, but to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Because in the end of the story, Joseph is freed, he's exalted into a position of influence, he um, makes godly choices, so to speak, to... to, um, Well, I guess the trial from Joseph helped Joseph to heal. 
So the pain caused personal healing for Joseph so that he wasn't the kind of person that he would have been if he just continued on being a spoiled person. So God, through the trial, healed Joseph from his family dysfunction. And then Joseph forgives his brothers who put him into jail, saying what you meant for evil, God meant for good, recognizing that and allowing the brothers to apologize. So now God, the trial caused family healing between Joseph and his brothers who, mind you, tried to kill him. <laughs> and then God, from that position that Joseph was in because of the grain and the savings and, and God's deliverance, was able to feed in the midst of a famine a whole nation of people. So truly, the sentence is true. What people meant for evil, God meant for good. So God let trials happen, and yet he was still a God who protected Joseph from a lot of negativity, protecting him from himself, from his family dysfunction, and protecting the whole nation of Israel and other people from dying from a famine. Okay, we're, we're slowly unpacking what this promise actually means to us, and I want to go now next to Romans chapter 8. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Rome, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Who have been called according to his purpose? Covenant people. And we know that God works all things for good. All things, meaning especially bad things. The thing I love about uh, Paul's writings here is that he doesn't say, hey, everyone, look on the bright side when bad stuff happens. And he's not saying bad things are really good things. You see what I mean? Like, he's not saying bad things are actually good, the death, the loss, the racism, the genocide. God's not saying, okay, that would actually be other religions' perspective on it, which is to say Buddhist perspective. You need to loosen yourself from your idea of truth and reality and existence enough that you can solve the problem of evil. Which sort of Buddhism is sort of built around that whole concept. He's not saying loosen your mind from evil so that you don't think it's evil anymore. He's saying God will work all things, even the nastiest of things. But he's going to work them in his protection in his power, in his nearness. And he'll do it for good. Do we know how good always works out? Do we have the perspective of how God will make it good? No, we don't. And I think that's like one of the greatest need-to-know basis mysteries, that when I get to heaven, by God's grace, I'll probably ask one of those questions, like, okay, this bad thing, how did you make that for good? Or was this a collective thing? Whatever it is, it reminds me of Dostoevsky, philosopher, uh, the brothers Karamazov, one of the uh, one of the characters, and I'll paraphrase, says, I believe like a child that at the end of all things, something so glorious will come to pass that it will account for all the sufferings, all the pain, and all the trials so that it will vanish away like a pitiful mirage. Or I believe like a child that there will be something so great and beautiful that it will suffice for all loss suffice for all hurt. And, we, and that's part of not blind faith, but, but a step of trust where we say, God, the one thing I know about you is that you're protecting, is that you're near. I know things about your character that I don't have an answer for every little thing that happens that's negative, or even the big things where you go, God, how could you ever make something good from it? And yet we know something about him that it does give us an answer on a high level for what we can do in the midst of suffering.
So God doesn't say, loosen your mind from evil, redefine evil to turn it to good. He's saying, God will work all things for good. And then thirdly, the third passage, and this is sort of our slam dunk thing because we're talking about Jesus here. Um, In chapter 21, Jesus talks to his disciples. These are the faithful. These are the early adopters. These are the people who signed on with Jesus when he was just a random carpenter guy. You'd think that they would have the easy life. They thought they would have the easy life, I suspect, actually. This is what Jesus says to his followers. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will put some... And they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. That's a great sermon, by the way. (laughs) End sermon. We shall pray. Uh, Let me read 17 again. So this is uh, Luke 21, 17. Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish by your patience, possessing your souls. What does that mean? This is one of the least favorite sermons from Jesus, I suspect. By your patience. Patience there is referring to the suffering. By your long-suffering possessing your souls. Okay, followers of God, everyone's going to hate you, especially your parents. The culture's going to hate you. Family's going to hate you. Your allegiance is going to completely have to change. And yet you will possess your souls with that kind of long suffering. Some of this, like what does Jesus even mean here, is answered for me in um, Jonathan Edwards, 1700s, probably one of the most brilliant Christian thinkers like in human history. Um, It's top, top 20. And uh, he said in this treatise on religious affections that everyone has a savior and a Lord. You, You say, I'm religious, I'm not religious, whatever. Every single person looks to something as their savior. People look to a relationship to save them from the hell of being alone. People look to um, money to save them from the hell of insignificance. People look to a job to save them from the hell of failure. Whatever it is, everyone looks to a savior. And whatever your savior is, it will also be your Lord because you're always obeying that thing that you adore, that you look to, that you think about when you have nothing else to think about. Everyone has a savior. And whatever your savior is, you will always obey it, serve it, and it will capture your soul. It'll capture the part of your life that only belongs in God's hands. And so religious affections is making the case that if you want to change your behavior, you have to change your Savior. That even rhymes. That's like a, that'll preach. If you want to change your behavior, you have to change your Savior. You have to look to, like, what am I worshiping? What am I uh, ascribing worth to? And how is it capturing my life? And so Jesus is saying, you're gonna, you might lose everything. You're going to lose the family. Then you're going to lose the friends, lose the status, then lose your life. But, weirdly, not a hair on your head will be touched he says, because you will possess your soul. He's saying there's a kind of identity, there's a kind of self that you will have for yourself, that you will say, this is my heart, and it'll never change. You can take everything from me because this identity is mine, and it will never change because it's an identity of a person who calls Jesus their Savior and therefore their Lord. They'll take everything from you. They'll never be able to take this away from you. Notice, the promise is not you won't go through things. Actually, the promise, like Isaiah, is that you will go through bad things. Isaiah says, uh, when you go through the fire, you won't be burned. When you are uh, drowned in the water, when you're covered with the waters, you won't drown. Well, the implication in that passage is that you will go through fire and you will go through the waters. So the promise is not that we avoid suffering. It's altogether something different. 
If you read Psalm 91 as God telling you that you won't have pain in this life, you're basically saying, I want to be Joseph without the trials. I want to be Joseph 1.0, where all my life problems are just spiraling out of control, where I get exactly what I want and see what kind of person that makes you into. And you might know this if you're a parent, because if you give your kids everything they want, like the number one rule of parenting is like, don't just give your kids whatever they want, right? All my son would do is drink root beer. Once he found out what root beer is, he's like, I want root beer. I don't need protein. <laughs> I just want root beer, right? If I give my son everything he wants, um, he, he will end up being a terrible terror of a person. And so the number one rule of parenting is like, don't just always say yes. Even if it's easier on you in the moment, you've got to do the whole discipline thing and you've got to do the whole boundaries thing and the whole let's sit down and talk and get down on your level and talk about why it's wrong. It's so much more work on the parent than the kid, of course. And like, that's the number one rule of parent. And if, if anyone said to you, just give them whatever they want, you would say, even if you're not a perfect parent, that's a bad rule of parenting. And then we go to God the Father and then we say, God, that's what I want. All I want is the sweets. All I want is the easy. All I want is the stuff that I idolize, that I look to from, as my Savior and Lord. So we know on one hand that no one will be made into a person of character or persistence or resilience or, or actual deep joy. Nobody will be made that way if all they get is what they want. And then we go to God the Father and say, I want what I want. And if you don't give it to me, you're not a covenant God, you're not a good God, and you're not a powerful God. So we're arriving at the place now where we see what the promise is. The promise is that God will protect you in trouble, but not always from trouble. And that is altogether more true and more real in light of what we have in Jesus. And if we look at the end of our passage, we see something about the salvation of God that, of course, on our end of human history, we get to look back and see the psalm, and we see the person that the psalm points to, our Savior, Jesus Christ. So this is how to enter into that promise, how to have peace in the midst of suffering in our own life. Look at verse 14, verses 14 through 16. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him, I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. That's very Job-ish, that verse. Verse 15, he will call on me and I will answer to him. I will be with him in trouble. So if you read the middle of the psalm, even the end of this psalm corrects our thinking if we think God will not let bad things happen to us, because verse 15 is saying, God will be with you, this is the promise, in trouble, and I would add in Jesus, through trouble as well. I will deliver him and honor him, verse 16, with long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. In trouble means that God will give us a resource through his son, Jesus Christ, and what he did for us on the cross, right in the midst of the very deepest, darkest, nastiest, bitterest parts of our life. I'm reminded of Jonah, Jonah chapter two, after Jonah runs away from God, uh, he's thrown into the ocean to save the other people, the, the fish swallows him, and then there's this poetic part to Jonah where he's reflecting on what he's done in his life, his own bigotry and racism that led to him not to go to these other people in Nineveh, but away from them. And then he's in the fish, belly of a fish, bottom of the sea. And uh, Edmund Clowney, Old Testament professor, says, like, this verse 
is like the most Jesus ringing verse of the entire Old Testament. He says, Jonah says, salvation is of the Lord. Next time you read Jonah, check that out. He realizes salvation is of the Lord, like full stop, period, exclamation point, upside down question mark, like whatever, like all of the focus of the book of Jonah is meant to be on that one verse, salvation is of the Lord, because after he says that out loud, that's when the fish is like, and then he goes back on land and goes preaches to Nineveh, and God's will is enacted in this prophet. In the darkest time of Jonah's life, his realization is salvation is of the Lord, and the same thing is true for us. Matthew 6, Jesus says, the mark of the prophet Jonah is on us. That promise is for us. We can say all the more that salvation is of the Lord. We know that for sure because of Jesus. And I don't mean that just you'll have a sense of God's presence in the midst of pain. I mean that there's like a very concrete promise in light of the cross that you can hold on to, say to yourself, write it on your, uh, on your mirror in permanent marker, uh, whatever it is, that, there's promises to hold on to in light of Jesus. And let's close with this. In Jesus, we have to know the lengths that God went to to be with us in trouble. The, there's like an old story that's been circulating about fires that went through Yellowstone and then, um, and then stories of these park rangers walking around and doing cleanup and checking things after the fire had passed. And then as the story goes, some park rangers brushed aside a bird, a big bird with expansive wings that had been burnt to a crisp in this position. And as the park rangers brush the bird aside, they see baby chicks coming from underneath her wings. And it's an apocryphal story because I looked it up on Snopes and I was like, can anything be good in this world? Like, it's not a true story. Apparently, I did all sorts of research. And, uh, and so I was thinking, okay, cool. It's not true. The story isn't actually true that like the park rangers did all that. It's from a uh, gospel message track from the 1940s, so I found. But I don't even care about birds. Birds don't save me. That image is exactly what we have in Jesus, the verified accounts of the gospel in the person of Jesus. So birds be darned. I can say birds be damned because it's in the Bible. Birds be damned. Like Jesus did that for us. Because the, the fire of wrath, the fire of sin, the fire of all the sufferings of the world, in order for them, in Dostoevsky's words, to, to vanish like a pitiful mirage, they need to be dealt with from a just God. And so Jesus is our mother bird. Jesus is our covering. It says in the psalm that Jesus is our refuge and shield. You know shields. They take a blow that would otherwise kill you and in taking that, that blow allow you to live. Jesus was our shield who took on punishment so that we could live. Jesus was the mother bird who protect us, protected us with his strength, protected us with his nearness, a kind of protection that would, in the metaphor, only come from him being close to us. And in Jesus, he came to be close to us, and he took on the wrath on the cross so that we could emerge and live. So that in the words of Psalm 34, those who trust in the Lord will be radiant so that your, your true self can come out, so that your true joy can come out in the midst of suffering. But it's only because he was our true and better mother bird who took on the punishment, the, the beating heat, 
and was near and powerful with us so that we could live. So God as God in this way from Psalm 91 is strength, he's near, but he's also substitutionary, a God who took on punishment so that in the midst of suffering, who, who came near and took on suffering, so then in the midst of suffering, we can say, I am through faith in God's grace. I am a covenant person. And sure, it's by God's grace. And sure, it's just because of his promise. And sure, I didn't earn it. And yet, in the midst of the darkest kind of suffering, we can say, the one thing I know about God is that he's a substitutionary God. That because he took on suffering, I can deal with suffering and know that I'm saved through it. That, that he's the kind of God who does love me and is near enough that there can be good that comes from this, even if I don't know it. He's truly that kind of God to be with us in trouble, not always protecting us from every kind of trouble as well. That's why in verse 16, Jesus is truly the fulfillment that we can have long life, eternal life, in satisfaction with him as our salvation. Let's pray.